Japan with Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. On this week's program, pancreatic narcolepsy. In addition, we're joined by Dr. Sharon Moalem, who will explain how sex works. So, stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the real famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty full. I've had a lot of fish recently. You know, I think you're taking care of all the basic needs on Maslow's hierarchy. It's three out of both. Well, I'm not really sure if you need all the higher ones on that, like spiritual fulfillments. <laughs> this brings me to uh, this week's Animal Fact of the Week. Oh, it's been so long since we've had the Animal Fact of the Week, I was beginning to think we'd forgotten it. We were reminded by one of our avid listeners. Yeah, well, thanks to Mr. Jonathan for reminding us of that. I missed it myself, too. <laughs> Who doesn't love animals? But, you know, this week, I'm into fishes. So cute and furry, right? And delicious. But it turns out that may be cruel, because the latest findings is that fish actually perceive pain when you bait them. Whole Foods has now stopped cooking lobsters. Right, I think you but, mentioned um, that uh, a couple weeks ago. Right, but now it turns out fish also feel pain. <laughs> so basically, Whole Foods is going to sell nothing but grain and dairy products. And tofu. All overpriced again, of course. Anyways, that's my animal fact <laughs> of the week. Well, uh, so so the take-home message of that is be kind to the animals because they can feel some pain. Or, I don't know, maybe if they're in pain, just chop their head off as soon as we're in. And eat them as quickly because then they're the freshest uh, they'll ever be, right? Right, and what, what better place in Japan to talk about fish? All right. Well, there you go. The animal fact of the week. <laughs> All right. And actually now I have a real story. It turns out to be another animal story, but this time with pigs. You know, also my favorite animal. They're so uh, slimy and scaly. And this one actually comes from our favorite journal. I was sort of at a loss as to what my life meant without that journal. <laughs> it's so prolific, too. It turns out one of the latest studies is that pancreas of these embryonic pigs, it can renew itself in other animals. The islet cells of the uh, embryonic pancreas can grow into a new organ in new animals, and they've shown this to be true with monkeys. Wow. So potentially this could lead to a treatment for humans to presumably grow their own pancreas, if that was the case. But they've been shown that it works in monkeys, in fact, to grow the entire organ. It's a step forward from previous types of transplant where they just transplanted the, the organ directly. Most of the times it failed because of rejection of the organ. But with an embryonic pancreas, it looks like it's very possible and probably even doable in humans in the future. I'm hoping that they're going to grow me a new brain. <laughs> what, your poker's not up to game now? <laughs> or maybe, maybe I could just use like an extra brain. You know, I don't have to get rid of the one that I mm. already have. An add-on. So you can work 24 hours a day instead <laughs> of just 12 a day, right? So for futuristic transplants, you can check out this article. It was work carried out by Yair Reisner from the Weizmann Institute in Israel and in our favorite journal, The Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. Yes. All right, well, so speaking of working uh, 36 hours a day, ever wish you could just yeah. stay up forever and never go to sleep? You can do that when you're dead, right? <laughs> I'll raise you to heaven. 
Well, so this actually turns out to be a problem for uh, the approximately one in 2,000 people that suffer from narcolepsy. So these are people who have trouble staying awake. They experience significant drowsiness during the day. So is narcolepsy due to some wiring problems in the brain? So they know exactly what the problem is. It's a loss of cells that produce hypocretin, a few brain cells that produce this that keep animals awake. Okay. So it's known that these cells are missing in the narcoleptics, but it's not known why they're missing. Right. And researchers have thought that it might be an autoimmune disorder in okay. which the immune system itself attacks these cells and destroys them. Mm -hmm. This theory was furthered by the finding that a type of protein called HLA, which is involved in the immune response, is correlated with narcolepsy. So researcher Emmanuel Mignot, a sleep researcher at Stanford University, has looked at this, and he's now found that there's another gene associated with the immune system, which involves T-cells, mm -hmm. and this also is correlated with these narcoleptic patients. Again, furthering the possibility of this link that narcolepsy itself is an autoimmune disorder. That means there must be a genetic basis to it? Patients who have narcolepsy also show this particular variant of the gene, which makes them more susceptible to this disease. Okay. And it's uh, quite a while before they can actually develop treatments for this, but this helps nail down the case for narcolepsy being an autoimmune disorder. Um, anyway, so this is a fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Nature Genetics. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Sherelle Malalam will join us to discuss how sex works. So stay tuned. to the Grok's Science Show. Well, all of us on this planet owe our existence to one simple and undeniable feature of human biology, sex. Yes, it's not just for fun and games, it also serves a useful biological function. But despite its prominence in human affairs, many myths and misconceptions still surround the act. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Sheryl Moalam. Dr. Moalam is an award-winning neurogeneticist and evolutionary biologist who has published papers in a wide variety of fields. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Survival of the Sickest, and his latest work, How Sex Works, Why We Look, Smell, Taste, Feel, and Act the Way We Do, explores this topic for a general audience. Dr. Mulwallam, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thanks again for having me. Oh, it's certainly our pleasure. We're glad to have you back on the program. You were on previously to talk about your book, Survival of the Sickest, actually talked about how evolution selects for diseases. And in this book, you actually talk about the uh, actual mechanism for evolution, sex. Was there sort of a common thread that linked you to uh, writing this book? Well, it was. It, it kind of actually came out of, believe it or not, my Alzheimer's research. I was a, classically a neurogeneticist in training. And um, we gathered all these families together looking for disease genes. And the one thing we kept on noticing in both the families that had Alzheimer's and didn't was many of the kids weren't related to the fathers. So we thought, okay, we, we did some, some laboratory error. We went back, did it over again, had the same issue. So we called some other labs. We talked about this and then, you know, jokingly called this the milkman effect, thinking that there's many biological dads out there who actually think they're related to their children. And that kind of started me thinking about sexuality and how, from a genetics perspective, what kind of influences may be changing our behavior. 
and exactly and to come kind of to the conclusion of you know how sex works and i think just looking at it from an evolutionary perspective just to understand our behavior taking that step back and seeing all those influences well, the book actually uh, sort of explores all these different aspects of our biology that really are influenced by evolution and how evolution really selects for these traits that are important for sex. Yeah, the classic one, male concern, of course, and to a less extent female concern, is penis size. <laughs> and when you kind of look cross-culturally, erect sizes, for example, are more or less the same across cultures and ethnicities. But flaccid size is where you actually see more of a significant difference. And this is why a lot of sexual men in um, locker rooms or at the urinals while they're having a peak are, you know, getting a little bit worried about their own size. And the reason is, if your ancestors are from a climate that was relatively cold, you can imagine having a flaccid size that is smaller is actually somewhat protective. You don't want to get frostbite of an important member. And if your ancestors come from a place that is typically more warm, then you might have flaccid a bigger penis. But in the end, when it comes to erection, you know, the big performance time, we're all about standing around at the same height. So that's the difference between the so-called growers and the showers, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so what about uh, another issue you talk about is, of course, female breasts. All these kinds of ideas and theories have been thrown out. Some people have said since humans have sex face-to-face, -face, it may remind them of, of the buttocks and so many mammals have different type of position. But it probably has to do with the idea of, in a way, it's a biological shorthand for us to figure out, does a woman have enough fat stores to have a child? And if you think about it, because having large breasts really doesn't impact the amount of milk production, the thing that's actually contributing to most of the size to a woman who's not lactating, it's just fat. So in a way, we're kind of looking at someone and saying, you know, they have enough fat, they can probably handle a pregnancy. And the interesting thing to do uh, with breast size as well, since most women's breasts aren't exactly the same shape and size, it's just like a natural part of development. But symmetry plays a big role in attraction. We seem to really give um, symmetry a big rating when it comes to attraction and arousal. And this makes a lot of sense. If you think about a, a butterfly, its wings should have equal sizes is for it to be able to fly properly. Well, when it comes to humans and biology, external symmetry then is usually mirrored by internal symmetry. You know, you kind of were put together in the right way. If you think about it, so if you put together a bookshelf and you did a good job, it should be straight and shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be wobbly. And the same thing comes to development. And you actually see this in issues of health where women who have significantly different breast size, we're talking about a few cup sizes difference, they're actually at more at risk for breast cancer. So this actually may hold true, this kind of biological attraction to symmetry really has roots in health and an observable future issue of reproduction and being around. Is this true for most of these sort of outward features that we uh, think of as beautiful as actually reflecting the health of the uh, potential mate? Yeah, it definitely could be. And of course, you know, there's tons of exceptions. And the one I write about is Marilyn Monroe's birthmark. And many women consider men more ruggedly handsome. They have certain features that possibly aren't symmetrical. But it's interesting, though, a lot of these studies have to do with measuring finger length or hand length. And it's not something that we think that we, we may be consciously processing, but even on a conscious level, when you blend faces and you, and you manipulate the features, even just using, say, Photoshop, when you start making faces more symmetrical, we will immediately start being more attractive. We will rate those faces much higher. Mm. You talk about this classic hourglass shape of women being very appealing to men. 
again, we're making generalities here, and, and when it comes to sexual preferences, everyone's completely different. But you tend to see trends, and the one, the inter- what's interesting for me is when you go cross culturally, you see very similar trends, and it's the one that you just mentioned, this hourglass shape. And it turns out that men might be attracted to hourglass shapes because, especially women who have that kind of that extra hip fat, may have greater stores of omega three in that specific region, and that omega three then can be used by developing fetus, and that that may then justify those studies now that have recently come out that found that women that tend to be more curvaceous have kids with higher IQ levels. So it could be that men are not only selecting for the fat stores, but they kind of know that this might be a good signal for fertility. And in fact, also women that are more curvaceous are also considered to be more fertile from a biological perspective. So it may be, again, this kind of like biological shorthand, you know, an advertised fertility that men may be picking up on, but ultimately making a decision for many different reasons. Indeed, and it seems to be evidence uh, that this has been around for quite some time. There's that famous statue of the Venus of Willendorf. Exactly, and it's very recently that we've kind of really gone in the other direction. And even though we're shown a lot of images of possibly very excessively thin women, in the end, men still are preferring women who are much more curvaceous. And what it's interesting how, you know, when we talk about how culture can start influencing biology and evolution and back and forth, the, today's preference for a thinner curvaceous woman also, as opposed to a Rubens, one might, might have to do with the fact that we know that this is also an indication of a future partner who's taking care of their health because we know of all the health benefits of having a lower weight than overweight or obese. And we kind of, again, are factoring and tweaking that in to our mate selection. Isn't this sort of a common mechanism throughout the animal kingdom is that these outward manifestations, uh, the peacock's feathers, of course, being the most obvious one, usually a sign of health? When it comes to sexual selection, there's, and there's still even controversy to this day, but it definitely it has to do with, with advertising. If you think about the millions of uh, dollars, classically even look at drug companies, they spend, they sometimes outspend their research, spend it on advertising. Well, animals do the same thing, and it's because their way of essentially showing what a good potential partner they would be. But in the end, it also, this is an example of how it could possibly kind of like cost you in the long run, if you're, especially if you're investing in very large antlers or certain behaviors, then that, that might kind of put you at risk for predation. Mm. Of course, uh, another very important feature is how we smell. I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, and the thing that I find surprising in my research is that women actually tend to use smell much more than men do. And actually, their sense of smell preference changes. And what they're attracted to typically seems to be MHC or HLA genes that are found in chromosome 6 that are different than theirs. And this is kind of the region of the genome that's the so-called kind of defense department or immune-related genes. And what they're doing in a way is they're sniffing out a partner because remember, these, these proteins will break down in your skin and give you a specific kind of scent signature. And this scent signature that women are, are picking up on and that in studies have rated to be attractive tend to be different than their own. So in a way, they're looking for immune genes that are different than themselves. They're looking for variation. They're moving away from monoculture. And the interesting shift, though, that happens is once women go on the birth control pill, and these were studies that followed women before and after and tracked what scent they were attracted to, it found that women tended to find scents from men that were more genetically similar to them more attractive after they were on the pill. And what this means is they went from wanting to be with someone who's very different from them uh, genetically in this region to someone who's more similar after they were on the pill. Which, from a psychological perspective, women who are pregnant tend to want to be around kin. 
And the birth control pill, as we know, of course, kind of tricks the body into thinking that we're pregnant. Well, maybe it has psychological effects as well, which can then change a woman's level of preference. And kind of long-term, or the long-term complications of this might be, studies have found that women who end up marrying men who are genetically similar in this specific region are actually much more likely to cheat, which from a biological perspective makes sense because if ultimately they're looking for these, they're looking or they're attracted to smells that are more different than the partner that they're with, uh, long term they may not be satisfied with their current situation. Hmm. So look for a mate when you're not on the pill then. Uh-huh, exactly. So if you are looking, if you're, you're a woman and you're, and you're listening and you are looking for Mr. Right, then maybe and head back to your doctor and uh, find an alternate form of birth control pill, at least during this kind of transition point in your life. <laughs> But love can actually encourage fidelity. Exactly. You know, this is interesting research that took couples that um, reported to be in love and asked them to think about their partners, and then they were shown a series of images. And it seemed to be that they tended to ignore images of prospective mates or prospective people that they would typically be attracted to. And it could be that love really serves this biological role of blocking out other potentialities by keeping us focused on our partner. And again, this comes back to the idea since human infants are so helpless when they're born and really need to make it out of that infancy period and they need a lot of help. Well, love can really help a couple bond and make it through that very tough kind of transition of, of parenthood. Because, you know, from a, from a rational perspective, keeping people together and raising children is not always the easiest thing. So this could be a biological way that arose to kind of keep people together and, in, and invested ultimately in their children, which again, then works in an evolutionary mechanism. Indeed. It also perhaps explains why women live so much longer to uh, take care of the kids after they're born. It could be. It could, it could also be that, coming back to the idea of men being more disposable, uh, the first kind of research, the insect research that I got interested in was uh, honeybees. And really, fast. I had like a, a summer job to pay for college, and that was, had to do with honeybee sperm collection, which was a fascinating time in my life that I try to forget, actually. Because <laughs> you had to uh, massage the bee's head in a certain way. Uh, the penis pops out. It's an audible pop. It sounds like popcorn. And it doesn't flip back in. He's done. He dies after that. And actually, his penis is detachable because it's designed to go into the female queen mid-flight. And he screws his penis in, snaps it off. He falls to the ground and dies. And then another male drone, another male honeybee comes over, unscrews his penis. The, the penis that he found in the queen throws it out, puts his penis in, and it just keeps going until the, until the queen is satisfied and goes back to the hive. So uh, it's interesting because when you look at honeybee society, that's the ultimate example of the disposable male. Since male honeybees really don't do anything, they're fed and kicked out of the hive right before winter just because they're just mosing and laying around and not doing much, just waiting to impregnate a queen. Given the sort of hazards that might go along with sex, why sex at all? Uh, why not asexual reproduction? It's a great question. When it, when it comes down to it, it seems that sex might be so popular across this planet because it really offers two big advantages. One is, again, this genetic reassortment that um, get a mixing bowl, uh, throw some genes inside from two individuals and come up with, an, with a unique organism, one who possibly is better suited, which is fantastic fodder for evolution. The other one that comes kind of hand in hand with that is it allows to kind of evade parasites and to get rid of and kick out freeloaders. And, and I saw this firsthand when I was working at a Thai orphanage where all the children came from HIV positive mothers. And only 25% of the children born to HIV positive mothers are infected with HIV, which is phenomenal. If you think about 
about the you know uterine placenta interface, it's actually a huge pathogenic filter. And it's incredible to me to think that 75% of children born to HIV-positive mothers escape the virus, meaning that evolution is doing its job. It's essentially getting rid of parasites and allowing the next generation to kind of, you know, have somewhat of a parasite-free existence. Now, of course, the flip side to all that is that you end up creating a new niche for STDs and STIs, sexually transmitted infections, actually then, then are using the, actually the mechanism that may be trying to avoid parasites and, and parasitizing us in a, in a brand new way. Well, what about homosexuality? Why is it prevalent if uh, sex is sort of the mode of operation of evolution? Well, I'm glad you bring that up. It, you know, for a lot of uh, thinkers in this field, this is very controversial. Some people say, you know, this is just an issue of or a cost of reproduction, having some members of an organism not being able to reproduce. But when you look across the animal kingdom, and almost every mammal almost that you come across, you find examples of homosexual behavior. It seems that really the only species that seems to have an issue when it comes to homosexuality is us humans, and currently in this time that we live in. Killer whales do it, chimps do it, you know, rams do it. It, it doesn't seem to be an issue. And actually, it might be something that can lead to social kind of bonding or, or cohesiveness. Or, you know, some people have even proposed that it's, it might be similar to ideas surrounding menopause. People have been, always been curious, why are women, uh, you know, reach a certain age, stop to reproduce? Is it because the quality of their eggs has declined and it's no longer worthwhile? It could also be that some studies from certain hunter-gatherer groups in Africa now have found that maternal grandmothers who are menopausal and are, you know, thus not reproducing, if they're still around, then their grandchildren have a higher chance of making it out of infancy. And when they kind of looked and teased out the details, what they found out was these maternal grandmothers were actually bringing back more food than they were consuming. So it may be that having certain members of your group around who can take care of their nieces and nephews and may not be involved directly in having children may actually benefit in the long run because even though they're nephews and nieces, some of their genes are still being passed on. So in a way, from an investment perspective, in a, in a biological view, in certain groups, homosexuality can persist. Hmm. Well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time. I'm just curious, what was the most fascinating thing you discovered in researching this book? It had to have been recent studies out of Australia showing that the quality of men's sperm improved when they viewed pornography. And, and it was very specific, the type of pornography. It was pornography where it was watching two men and one woman. Which it goes against the whole cultural idea, uh, or you know, that's commonplace that we think that men get much more excited of watching two women and, and and one man. And but from a biological perspective, this of course makes sense because we actually have examples of this in other species where before ejaculating, they can actually control the amount of sperm based on the amount of competition. So the quality of the men's sperm improved, and and this was actually done in IVF clinics where men were giving sperm samples because they kind of viewed that as a competition. Now. The mechanism behind it, how what they viewed affect the quality of their sperm instantaneously, that remains uh, a complete black box at this moment. And, and I'm very excited to see any follow-up research to see if this can be confirmed or if this was, was, was just a one-off study. Mm. <laughs> just have some final messages uh, regarding the whole issue of sex and uh, why we look, smell, feel, and taste the way we do. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, picking up my book, I guess, and using it as like a conversation starter and um, getting all these ideas out in the open, I, I think it, in some senses that's what kind of gives me hope because it's 2009. There's still so many issues that we feel kind of uncomfortable and we can't bring up. And, and I, I think that really to have full and enjoyable sex lives, looking at it from every perspective and putting it all together and being open about it can really go far into making that happen. Indeed, indeed. Well, the new book is called How Sex Works, Why We Look, Smell, Taste, Feel, and Act the Way We Do. Uh, Dr. Malalam, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. That's great. Hey, thanks for having me. And you were just listening to Dr. Sharon Malalam discussing how sex works. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic sexual or asexual. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were to reproduce, would they reproduce sexually or asexually, and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Dr. Malam, you ready to play the game? Ready. All right, here we go. Sexual or asexual, uh, item number one, the iPod. Definitely asexual. <laughs> Because I think just just like memes, they they kind of they they propagate really really quickly when it's asexual, and I think that's the one benefit when you look at asexual versus sexual reproduction, <laughs> that it could be much much faster. Uh, item number two are uh, poker chips. Poker chips actually definitely should be sexual. I, I'd like to see a lot more colorful kind of blendings and uh, and new creations there. <laughs> Hopefully, going up in value too. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, number three uh, would be an interest only mortgage. Oh, definitely has to be uh, has to be uh, asexual there. Uh, all right, uh, item number four, uh, Viagra. Oh, I, I think that we should we should uh, reproduce this as quickly as possible and spread it to uh, every uh, available person who needs it. So let's go with asexual. Okay. <laughs> all right, and finally, uh, item number five, it's the national debt. Well, with this one again. We need, we need to fix this as quickly as possible, and it seems to be growing out of... I, I think it definitely looks to be... It's, it's, it's reproducing asexually. <laughs> it's uh, sort of bad news for us, I guess. <laughs> right, exponentially. <laughs> All right, uh, well, Dr. Malalam, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around uh, playing the game, and again, of course, talking about your book, which is How Sex Works, Why We Look, Smell, Taste, Feel, and Act the Way We Do. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's great. Thanks for having me. All right, and now it's time for this week's question of the week. And here with us today, again, straight from Dagobah, it's Jedi Master Yoda. Yoda, how are you doing? Mm. When 900 years old you are, fastest mule you be. Mm. Control reactions you will. Mm. But the fastest one can you do? Mm. I don't even know if I know what is the fastest reaction. Strong the force it is. It is the transfer of protons. Mm. 
control with the force. I cannot. Proteins and DNAs. The proton reaction will. <clears throat> the biochemical force is indeed powerful, Yoda. <clears throat> <clears throat> Mysterious and powerful the force is. May the force be with you. And also with you, Yoda. Thanks a lot. <clears throat> And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>